Joel, you want to know something? What? Every now and then, say what the f What the f gives you freedom? Freedom brings opportunity. Opportunity makes your future. If you can't say it, you can't do it. Welcome to Sailing in the Mediterranean podcast. I'm your host. My name is Franz. Welcome back to the Sailing in the Mediterranean podcast. It's been typical spring weather in Utah this last week. It got up so warm, I think it was 75 degrees last week, and I had to turn on the air conditioning when I was driving around. And then, then the next day, we're having a bunch of snow in the valley. Typical spring weather. Never know what you have to plan on. One time I was skiing up at Targi, up in Idaho. And on that day, it was sunny. We were in t-shirts. It rained, and it snowed all in one day. So you never know what you're going to get in spring. I got a friend coming to town Saturday. Ed from Chicago. Ed is the guy that I did my first Chicago Mackinac race with. We go way back. He's a client of mine, a good friend and a good client of mine. And his family's from Iraklia or Iraklia? Iraklia. The island just to the west of Samos in Greece. And it's known for the longevity of its residents. It's, I think, the second or the first in longevity of its people. There's more old people. People live longer on that island than almost anywhere else in the in the world, I think. I think Okinawa is one other island where people tend to live a long time, but Heraklia, that's how I always say it, is, uh, is either the first or second. I've sailed there along the southern coast, and the wind between Heraklia and Samos can be nasty, nasty, nasty. You can almost have hurricane-force winds for, with the Venturi effect through the, through the two islands. Both of them are really tall islands, and so when the wind is blowing, when the Maltimis are blowing, it just funnels the wind right through the pass between the two islands and can be very treacherous. Once you turn the corner, uh, then you're out of the wind, but it can be pretty bad in that pass. So anyway, I plan on skiing with Ed on Monday at Deer Valley. I got a couple emails from listeners. One's from Jim. Jim says, first-time emailer, but long-time listener. Quick bio on me. I live in Nashville, Tennessee, owner of Whisper, a Catalina 25, ASA 101, 103, 104, and 114 rated sailor. I'm sure you've answered this question several times, so a cut and paste answer would be fine. Question. I'm looking to do my first bareboat charter in Greece the first week of July and would like a recommendation on which group of islands to sail. It will be just me and my wife, so fair sailing waters are ideal more cultural solitude than party crowds. Also not stuck on Greece and open to other parts of the Med. Thanks, Jim. And then he said, I'd be happy to review my audio courses and give me some feedback and reviews. So I sent him a link to review one of my audio courses. So Jim, I gave you a quick answer in an email, but let me just go into a little more detail. And I've talked about this in the past on other podcasts but my recommendation, if you're going to be sailing in the Mediterranean for the first time, is that you charter a boat on the west side of Greece, the Ionian Islands. And in particular, I would recommend that you get right to the islands, um, starting in Lefkus. So I'd, I'd recommend you charter a boat out of Nidri, Lefkus, 
or the area right around the islands. Uh, and there's plenty of charter bases in Levkus town. There's a big marina in Levkus, and there'd be lots of places or lots of companies, I would think, to be able to charter from from Levkus. The other alternative is to fly to Corfu, and there's going to be more flights and easier to get in and out of Corfu uh, and then charter out of Corfu. There, there's a big charter base. A lot of companies have uh, their their charter bases in the big marina just north of Corfu town. And I took a lot of pictures and videos of it when I was there the last time, thinking I was going to post them on the website and I've never bothered getting around to it. Uh, but that would probably be uh, my second choice in chartering and the Ionian side. And the main reason I say that is more than likely you're going to want to get down to Kefalonia and Ithaca. And you, that way you'd have to basically sail down uh, from Corfu, uh, down past Paxi and Antipaxi and past Proviso and through the Levkus Canal. And then when you're done with your charter, you're going to have to work your way north again with the prevailing winds from the north. And that water out there is not as protected as the water if you start sailing in Levkus or Nidri. So that would be my suggestion. I talk quite extensively in my podcast, I think it's about three or four podcasts ago, about my favorite spots in the Ionian Islands. Now, I recommend that more than I recommend uh, Croatia, uh, primarily because in Croatia you can get the, uh, the boras that blow down off the mountains in the middle of the night. And while the sailing during the day can be flat, calm, or just nice and comfortable with prevailing winds from the north, the boras at night can, can ruin a good night's sleep. You may be up on anchor watch like I have been many a night. Uh, and so for just two of you, for relaxing sailing, I'd recommend the Ionian Islands in Greece. I wouldn't recommend uh, the Aegean side. In July in the Aegean, you can get Meltimis and the wind can be very strong from the north, northeast or northwest. And while it may be easy to slide down the wind, or not necessarily easy, but you can always trim your sails and go downwind. But coming back up, if you have to get back to your charter base, can be a real miserable experience. And it's happened to me the one time I chartered a boat out of Athens, out of Kalamaki Harbor in Athens. Getting back to the charter base at the end of the charter was right in the middle of a Meltemian that actually closed the marina, so people were not even allowed to leave the marina. And, of course, I was already out there trying to get my boat back on time uh, for the end of the charter. So uh, I don't recommend the uh, the Aegean side and until you're a little more advanced in chartering. If this is your first time charter over there, do yourself a favor and, and just stick on the uh, western side of Greece, the Ionian side of Greece. Now, the bad side of that, it is, it is probably the most popular charter area in the entire Mediterranean, so you're going to have a lot of company. But fortunately, there's lots of places to go. And if you want to get into the very popular harbors, listen to the podcast in Kefalonia on Fis Fiscardo in Kefalonia. You need to get into that harbor early in the day. Otherwise, there's not going to be any room at the dock later in the day. Also on Ithaca, if you go into Ithaca City, there's usually uh, places to anchor uh, or pull up or dock uh, all afternoon. That's a pretty big harbor. But uh, Kioni, which is one of my favorite picture-perfect harbors, it will fill up very quickly as well. And you have lots of flotillas. And uh, you may be into a harbor one afternoon and suddenly it's filled up with a flotilla of boats that are being led by the mother duck. That's my suggestion for you. I've sent you a link to my ASA 101. I look forward to your review. The next letter came from Philippe. Philippe says, 
Thanks for your great podcast. I recently discovered them and really enjoyed all your interviews. This allows me to stay patient and continue dreaming while the winter here in Canada fades away. Soon we will get on our boat and recommission it for the summertime. This year we are planning on sailing from Lake Champlain to the Hudson River, down to New York City, and then continue to Long Island Sound, then north maybe up to Maine, and then back all over a two-month period of time. Since I have not yet listened to all your podcasts, I'm not sure if you've interviewed this couple already. If not, I think they might be good candidates. Among the sailors that went across the Atlantic a couple of times, Phyllis and John from morgenscloud.com. Another person you may try is Benoit Villeneuve. Villeneuve. Now, I don't pronounce French, and it's a French name, so forgive me. And a sailor here in Quebec and did two loops around the Atlantic over the last few years and wrote a book about it and how to get there. His website is in French, but I'm sure he understands English. Well, Philippe, I reached out to... Phyllis and John of morganscloud.com. I went to their website, and it looked like a great website with a lot of information on there. And they responded to my email and said they've only been across the Atlantic three times in the Arctic, so not the regular sailing route, which would take you to the Bermuda and then up to the Azores. So they declined to talk about sailing across the Atlantic. Now, I reached out to them after I got that rejection email and I said, boy, your your website looks pretty interesting. Why don't you pick a topic you might be interested in talking about and and come on the podcast? And I have not heard back from them since that email, so maybe they're not interested. Now, I, I will reach out to Benoit, Benoit, B-E-N-O-I-T, so forgive my pronunciation, and see what he says. If anybody else has suggestions on who I might talk to about what the techniques and gear would be for sailing across the Atlantic. Somebody's done it several times, not just a one-time person. I would like to talk to them. Also, if you have suggestions on other topics you would like me to cover, let me know. And if you have somebody you'd like me specifically to talk to, pass that information along as well. You can assume that if you're interested in it, other people are as well. Now, I did write John Fulweiler a letter. John's the lawyer who came on and talked about salvage law and maritime law a while back. And I asked him to think about doing a podcast where we talk about boat documentation versus state registration and ways that you might wish to title your boat, whether it's in a corporate or some sort of other legal structure or whether you'd want to do it in joint tenants, tenants in common, or as an individual. And then he could cover some other topics that he thought we might be interested in. Haven't heard back from him. I think he's out of the country, but he did express an interest in coming back on again. And if he can be our resident legal scholar on admiralty law, I'd appreciate that. I think that would be fun. So if you have any other suggestions, let me know. I appreciate listener comments and emails. You you can get a hold of me by emailing me at franz, F-R-A-N-Z, at medsailor.com. Now I'm going to ask you a favor if you like this podcast, will you please go on to iTunes and give it a rating, uh, write a comment as well. I haven't received that many ratings, and for as long as this podcast has been on, and as big as the audience is, I would think that I'd have more ratings and reviews. It really helps other people find the podcast the more ratings that I get in iTunes. So please do that for me. Take a minute of your time. There's been several of you that have taken the time and have written comments, and I read all those comments, good or bad, doesn't matter, whatever you think, go ahead and write it in there. 
And then my last advertisement, if you're just starting out and you want to learn to sail, why don't you consider getting my ASA 101 audio lesson series? This is an audio lesson that will help you prepare for the ASA 101 exam. This is your basic keelboat certification. It's not going to teach you to sail. It's going to teach you the terminology, some of the safety procedures on the boat, some of the rules of the road, and some basic information that you really need to have before you get on a boat. With that information, at least you can get on a boat and understand the terminology and what is taking place. So that's it. It's available at medsailor.com. It is also available in iTunes and Amazon. But if you have a choice, please buy it through the website. More of the money goes into my pocket that way. They're priced at $29.99 for that series. I have three series, the ASA 101, another series for the ASA 103, and another for the ASA 104. They're each $29.99. You need to get up to the ASA 104 if you want to go and bare boat charter a boat now. With these lessons, this is just preparing you for the written portion of the exam. And I make these lessons interesting by relating the lessons to actual stories and anecdotes to try to make them interesting and to reinforce the learning. So, with that out of the way, let's get on to my interview with Linus Wilson on sailing slowly around the world. I'm with Linus Wilson. He's the author of a couple books. Slow Boat Sailing is one of them we're going to be talking about. And then he's also got Slow Boat to the Bahamas, right? Uh, one's called Slow Boat to the Bahamas, and the other one's called How to Sail Around the World Part-Time. Oh, okay, okay. Well, have you sailed around the world yet? Nope, haven't done it yet. <laughs> Just read about it. So I'm from the grand tradition of academics that study things but don't actually do them. So tell me about your sailing experience, first of all. Uh, I have... No sailing experience prior to 2010. Uh, and then I uh, was delayed from my plans to have a trip in the in Europe uh, because of the Icelandic volcano. And instead, we had a trip to a Caribbean island named Antigua. Uh, and I saw some bushy-haired men living on boats, and I was hooked. I know you've been interviewed on a few other podcasts, but maybe our listeners haven't listened to those podcasts. But tell me a little bit about yourself, where you're located, when you started sailing, that sort of thing. Right. I'm from Louisiana. Uh, I'm a finance professor over there at the University of Louisiana of Lafayette. And uh, we've, got, we've had a couple sailboats uh, that I talk about in Slow Boat to the Bahamas. Uh, one was a 30-foot hinterholer red wing, and the, the Slow Boat is uh, a 31-foot island packet. Who, manu who, who manufactures the island packet? That I think that was mentioned in uh, Frederick Mate's Best Boats, wasn't it? Yeah, I think they, you know, they show up on uh, many Best Boats lists. I, you know, I, the island packet is, they've got, it's very traditional design. It's a full keel. It's got a, a long, sturdy bowsprit that's easy to walk on. They're typically cutter rigged, although mine is sloop wood rigged. Um, 
you know, I like, there's a lot of features I like about them. I like the polycord decks, so you don't have the trouble with balsa cord decks. Um, so those are a few features that I think are really cool about the boats. Are they still being made? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, I have not heard an official announcement, but I've heard stories of people uh, who have said that they, they're going on a restructuring and they have halted production. I know they, they've been around quite a, quite a they while. They definitely until a few months ago. Okay, okay. <laughs> where, where are they made? Where are they manufactured? Do you know? In Largo, Florida. Okay. Well, you don't sound like you're from Louisiana. No, that's right. I, I, I grew up in Ohio, which is at least the part of Ohio I was in didn't have much water, but I doubt that we would have sailed if we were near water anyways. <laughs> okay. So I'm, go- I'm at your website, which is slowboatsailing.com. And on the top here, I see a map, and I see numbers, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, to the south tip of Florida. Is that one of your routes that you did? Right. So that's kind of giving people an idea, uh, the trip that we took in slow boat to the Bahamas. So that was really our kind of, you know, our only our first big trip, uh, big cruise of more than a few weeks uh, was to the Bahamas. So you went all the way down to and the Bahamas, or is it the Bahamas you went to in that trip? Yeah, so we went. To, we started out in New Orleans, and we went to Georgetown, Exuma, and then turned around via the Florida Keys and the Gulf of Mexico. So tell me what your book's about and why uh, people would be interested in picking up your book. Uh, Slow Boat to the Bahamas, it's kind of... Uh, takes me for, as a neophyte uh, who is still, even at the end, still struggling uh, to find his way uh, and keep the boat moving. Um, so I, you know, I think it's just a, a, a tale of discovering a wonderful passion and uh, and how do you turn that into actually getting the boat to go somewhere. Now, you're an academian. You're a college professor, correct? That's right. So you have the summers off if you want to go sailing. Is that right? Uh, that's true. And, you know, that, that kind of segues kind of well into how to sail around the world part-time. So one of the things that I, you know, was dreaming about was, you know, to sail the South Pacific. How can you do that? Uh, I don't want to give up my career. I, I've heard, you know, I know there's a lot of people out there that don't want to do that. They don't want to give up their small business. And, you know, I basically hit a brick wall, uh, in that my wife didn't want to quit her job and move on to a sailboat full time. And I couldn't figure out how to, to sail, in the Caribbean because uh, during the summers it's obviously hurricane season. So the North American summers are hurricane season. But what I, when I started studying it a little more, I realized that uh, most of the, the circumnavigation trade wind circumnavigation route is in the Southern hemisphere. And so the Northern hemisphere 
summer is the southern hemisphere winter and a great deal of that route is not even affected by hurricane season for example panama is uh is outside of the hurricane belt so hurricanes don't hit panama so i recently got an insurance policy and they're very happy uh, that i plan to keep my boat in panama uh this summer and I actually am going to get a much lower rate on the insurance than I get in New Orleans. Can, can you give me an idea what you're paying for insurance? I'm just kind of curious because I just got my insurance bill the other day. Uh, I think I think we paid three thousand, and it's going to be half that. Okay, all right, that's that's reasonable because mine's right around the uh, fifteen hundred to two thousand dollar range right now. So that's and I think we've got fairly similar boats. The Bristol Channel Cutter I think is about the same size as. Is the island pack at 30, is it the 31 or the 32? 31. Yeah, okay. So is the boat, where's the boat right now? It's in New Orleans, so that's definitely the safest place to store a boat, right? <laughs> that's right. I guess I guess if you're, uh, if you're playing the odds, you're probably okay, but eventually it's going to catch up on you. Exactly. So a lot of boats were destroyed in 2005 with Hurricane Katrina. So stories vary of people that fixed up their boats and all for naught. So is it a long haul to get out to the Gulf from New Orleans? How long does it take you to get out to the Gulf? Uh, you can do it in a day. So it's not that far. Uh, most, of the, most of the sailing in New Orleans is done on Lake Pontchartrain, which is estuary that, that feeds into the boat and it's it, the lake pontchartrain is north of the mississippi river so the mississippi river runs uh through the french quarter and so on the north shore of new orleans is lake pontchartrain okay is there an active racing fleet out there oh yeah they have very active uh wednesday night races unfortunately i don't live in new orleans i live in lafayette louisiana which is about 100 or so miles away okay so you, you get down there on weekends but not for the uh for the Wednesday night races then. Do you have some tips? I think you talked to me about at one point in time about do it yourself and on, on water uh, for your boat, getting water to your boat. Yeah. So I, I recently wrote this article in the January edition of good old boat about how you can set up a bladder tank for your dinghy uh, and fill the bladder tank and then pump the water from the bladder tank into your tanks on board your boat and the big alternative to that is either if you can reach the water uh, from a dock that is accessible to your to your big boat you could go over there but a lot of uh you know full-time liveaboards don't move their boats a lot you know like for instance uh in in places like Bukey harbor uh or other mooring fields in south florida uh, or if you're at anchor in Georgetown, you don't want to move your boat. You've got a good anchoring spot. You don't want to move your boat. And you typically will end up dingying water via jerry cans unless you have a water maker. Now, a water maker will cost you a minimum of $4,000. Even if you do it yourself, you're probably going to shell out $3,000 and have to use a generator. Uh, but... Uh, to build a bladder tank system that you can do that for about $400. And that's a lot easier than carrying water over the stern 
because water is the heaviest liquid that you put into jerry cans. Now, have you tried this out? Did you uh, test it out? Oh, yeah. I used it extensively on our trip. Um, so I saw somebody doing something similar in Boot Key Harbor in Marathon, Florida, and I shamelessly copied him. So it's hard to go just find a water tap then to fill up to fill up the water in, in a lot it's of areas not, you've been. It's not necessarily a problem to find a tap. The problem is, is you know, are you going to move your boat to the tap is the question. And a, a lot of boats would prefer to just fill up the jerry cans than move their boat. I know I was in Trezona in, in Greece, a little island called uh, Trezona, and I was there tied up way at the very end of the dock. This is one of the docks or one of the keys that the EU had built and the Greeks had never finished, so it was basically free mooring. So a lot of people uh, were staying at the dock for free. And the problem was there was no water on the dock. And there was a tap way over on shore. And you could go over there and talk about exactly what you're doing, fill up your jerry cans. But one day we sort of self-organized and everybody pulled off whatever hose they had. And lo and behold, we were able to get the hose long enough to go all the way to the tap. And it was probably a couple hundred yards of hose that we were able to put together between all the boats on the dock. And then one by one would fill up our, our, our tanks. <laughs> And so everybody was happy. Everybody got their hoses back, and it was just a great community <laughs> effort. So, Oh, that's awesome. Uh, yeah, no, I think normally the situations uh, were there, there was a dinghy dock. You might have been able to pull up your boat to the dock. But, for instance, in Georgetown, Exuma, everybody uses uh, a dinghy dock, which is not accessible to the the bigger boats it can, you can only get a dinghy into i think it's lake victoria in georgetown exuma you know i mean there's it, water makers are doable i've installed a water maker on my boat um but you know there's a lot of filters involved you have to be very careful about how you run it um if you're not running it you have to pickle it which is not that big a deal but it's it's a it's a whole lot of maintenance and a, a lot of care that you need to take versus filling up a bladder and pumping it out and the, the nice thing about the bladder is you're not you're not hauling water every day and this is this is more important on my boat where uh i mean my wife is or when my wife is on board we use more water she's very she is pretty water conscious but she also likes to take a shower every day um so it's it it's it's important. I think it's important for a lot of boats that they they have access to to washing water. Although you know, other alternatives are if you're in warm water. And I think we had this discussion once. That there was I think once we spoke over the phone. You know, can you do showers in the med? Right? Is the is the water uh, too cold to do that? And I think you said it probably is. But in the Caribbean or around Florida, if it's not too crowded, uh, you can you can lather up uh, with salt water and then just rinse with fresh water uh, on your boat's stern, and that works really well too. Yeah, no, I've uh, the Mediterranean is pl usually plenty of warm water unless you go really early in the year, like I did last year, and then it's it's brisk. But uh, my my routine on taking a shower on my boat is uh, is I use some 
little spray bottles, the insect sprayers, and I fill those up with fresh water. And when I want to shower down, I use Pantene shampoo, which I found suds up very well in, in salt water. And I'll uh, jump in the water and then get out and wash myself off with the shampoo, which will suds up nicely in the salt water. And the Mediterranean is really, really salty water, much more so than, uh, than the Pacific or the Atlantic. Um, and then I'll, then I'll jump in and then rinse off. And then, then here's the key for the way I'd like to do it. Because if you jump out, if you get out at that point in time and you have all this really salty water on you and you take a nice fluffy towel and towel down, that fluffy towel is going to be like uh, an abrasive with the salt crystals that dry in it eventually, very quickly. So I take a, a basically a, a SAMI, which is a, a swimmer's, basically it's a chamois, like a, like a car chamois. It's, it's used to absorb yeah. water and... And if you see divers in competitions, they always wipe themselves off with these little towels, and those are basically uh, wa- very highly water-absorbent towels, uh, and get pretty much all the salt water off of me there and then spritz myself off with just a little bit of fresh water from my uh, my insect sprayers, my insect bottle sprayers that are filled with fresh water, and then use my regular towel to dry me off after that. And that way, uh, my water goes a long, long ways on the boat. Well, yeah, that sounds like it would that way. I, you know, I, an alternative is just if you do have a cockpit shower uh, attachment, you just the last thing you do after you do you do a salt water rinse. Then once you've done your salt water rinse, you have no no soap on you anymore. Then you do a fresh water rinse really quick, and you won't use much water if you do that. Well, I've noticed my daughters and my wife. To get the salt water out of their hair will will use up a lot of water. <laughs> so that's true. Yeah, <laughs> I don't have that much hair to wash. <laughs> okay, so uh, what's your planned route next year? Uh, so uh, my hope is to get to Panama this summer. Uh, planning on leaving in uh, May this year, and uh, we're going to go to Isla Mujeres in Mexico on the Yucatan Peninsula. That's right next to Cancun. So how long a hop is that for you? That's going to be a fairly long hop, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's going to be six days, something like that. So that's going to be the longest longest leg of the trip then? It might be. Yeah, probably would be because I think in the Caribbean uh, we would uh, stop in Providencia, which is an offshore island which is closer to Nicaragua than Colombia. Uh, and then after Isla Mujeres, we go to Cuba. I have a permit to go to Cuba. You may have heard about the detente that the, the current government is having with Cuba. It's made it a lot easier for people to travel there, uh, including by boat. Uh, and then... Uh, then go to, to about the middle of Cuba, this island called Cayo Largo, and use the Cuba coast to kind of break up the trade winds and motor most of the way. Uh, and then then hopefully have a beam reach to Providencia and Panama. What was involved in getting your permit to sail in Cuba? Oh, it's, it's there are three different bodies that you need to get a permit from. Um, the first one is that you should look up is OFAC. Uh, which is a department of the treasury mm-hmm. and they will 
they have 12 categories for which it is permissible for Americans to travel. And so OFAC makes it, if you get a, if you fall under one of the uh, general licensing categories, which means you do not have to apply, but you do have to write down your reasons why you fall under that license, uh, then uh, you can you can have that particular crew member who falls under that license travel with you. Then uh, with BIS, uh, you can go to Cuba for up to 14 days with a general license if you fall under those OFAC categories. Uh, BIS is a Commerce Department, and that qualifies your boat to being able to go to Cuba. But there is actually one uh, additional step. Uh, the third step is going to the Coast Guard. Now, if you are traveling to Cuba for more than 14 days, you needed more time than that, uh, and I asked for more time than that, then you have to make an application with BIS and uh, get an export license from BIS, which I did get. Uh, and that will permit your boat to go. But once you get the OFAC general license, in most cases, it'll be a general license. And in most cases, you'll get it. Most people from the US traveling to Cuba this year in a boat uh, will probably travel under the 14-day rule. Um, they don't need applications for either one of those things, but they do have to write down their reasons. Then uh, you you go to uh, the U.S. Coast Guard 7th District, and if you just Google USCG or CG 3300, uh, you should be able to find the CG 3300 form which you need to fill out, which is a really short form, and it probably takes anywhere from three weeks to a month, uh, if all goes well, uh, to get that approval. But maybe it's as short as 14 days. So it does take some advanced planning, and obviously for boaters, you know, the kind of thinking, that, that much thinking ahead is kind of anathema because uh, you want to have a flexible schedule so you can uh, maintain weather and that sort of thing. So, uh, you know, one of the good parts with the permit that I got is it's kind of a general year, which is slowly expiring, but it, it's kind of an open window of, of when I was born. So does, do you have to arrive in Cuba on a specific window and at a, at a specific time with these? Uh, I, my interpretation of mine is that I, that I need to land in, uh, at a particular marina. And then I need to leave from a particular marina. But, but beyond that, the time is not. I don't. I don't have a, a specific time. Oh, okay. So you went longer than fourteen days. Is it open end at that point in time? That yeah. The other thing is that if you if you're not doing a return trip from the U.S. and to the U.S., there's kind of a a, a legal gray area, which I think most people would interpret that you need to get a BIS permit. BIS license before you apply for your Coast Guard permit. So if you're doing a trip like I'm doing from Mexico to Cuba to Colombia, right, then that would require a, a BIS permit or BIS license, a pre-application. You couldn't just go without making the application to the Bureau of Industry and Security. Okay. 
the the ex so you are you actually considered exporting your boat is that what it amounts to it, then it is an export license yep what does that entitle you to do visit that's all okay so it's I'm not, not like it's not it. like you can do business or anything it's not like you can take uh, goods and services okay. down there okay yeah yeah i'm not going to sell anything uh if nothing else, because of the Cuba regulations. So a lot of people um, who want to go to Cuba uh, get the idea that they'd like to give stuff to Cubans because they, they know that because of the embargo, uh, they've been quite impoverished because of, you know, uh, you know maybe the, the failures of the Castro regime, the kind of people are, are, are lacking in a lot of basic goods and they'd like to give away stuff. But that's a definite no-no from the Cuban authorities' perspective, and they will confiscate any if you do that kind of widespread handing out stuff. Uh, then you're... So, are you making any special adjustments or putting any special gear on your boat in preparation for this trip? Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, one of the benefits of going back to the states is you have access to all these wonderful. Um, shipping options that are relatively inexpensive and you have all, all these different marine chandleries uh, that you can tap uh so uh, i found in the bahamas that shipping is, is a real uh disaster even though it's even though at one point i was only 50 miles from miami uh i, I found it was definitely not like being 50 miles from miami in the united states and uh, so, uh, yeah, so there's a lot I'm putting on. Uh, you know, I put on the water maker. I put on a wind generator. I put on about three or 400 more watts of solar panels uh, since we got back. Um, we, we also kind of outfitted the boat prior to the Bahamas trip. Uh, one of the things I recently put on was uh, AIS because I found in the, the middle of the Gulf Stream uh, at night, as I was crossing the Bahamas the first time, that almost ran into a boat. Um, so it, all, any help I can get in terms of uh, better seeing the boats. And uh, often, you know, the the ship, and you probably know this since you've taken the captain's exam, that the, uh, the lighting for ships is actually fairly complicated, whether it's a fishing vessel versus it. So if you don't red and green and you think you got that down for the basics that you get from maybe an asa 101 through 104 you really don't know the lighting patterns of commercial vessels which are far more complex so if you have an ais uh hopefully you got a transceiver so they can see you and uh, even if you get a receiver so you can see them you can get a, a better uh, idea of where they are uh, in those uh, crowded shipping lanes. What brand did you buy on the AIS? Uh, I bought one of the most inexpensive brands, uh, an M-Track. Uh, they sell them through West Marine. So if uh, people want to get a discount on their next big purchase from West Marine, go to slowboatsailing.com and click my West Marine link and put in the promo code at the end, and they'll get $15 off their next purchase at West Marine. Okay. So I spent a ton at West Marine. So. <laughs> <laughs> but, 
I've always thought the West Marines should just go out and buy a bunch of old boats and give them away with the caveat <laughs> that you have to buy your parts from West Marine and then come out smelling like a rose. Oh, if they just gave them away, they wouldn't even have to require you, really. I see you have an audio CD on how to sail around the world part-time. Yeah, yeah, I finally got that uh, up on iTunes. I I followed your, I'm a big longtime listeners of yours, and I I did as a creator. I thought Gumroad was a great place to put yourself up, but I'm not sure that uh, people like to buy from Gumroad. But you can get you can get half off the iTunes price if you buy the CD on Gumroad. But I I, I don't know where iTunes and Amazon. I don't know how they set the prices. It was not the prices that I requested. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so you can you can get the audio version on Gumroad for five dollars. Okay, because I'm at your website and I don't see a Gumroad link on on the on the website. Is there a Gumroad link there somewhere? Yeah, it's a big it's a big long gray button above the Amazon link. Huh. The the one that says "Slow Boat Two with the Bahamas" in. I think if you go to the bottom of the page, you'll you'll find uh, how to sail around the world part time, and then uh, if you click on the CD link, then uh, that'll also take you to the MP3 link uh, uh, on Amazon. Or right above that is the kind of gray bar that has a link to the Gumroad. So you have your own podcast? I did. I started a podcast uh, a month or so ago. Oh, okay. So- episode six as we speak i was going to release an episode later today i'll have to check it out because i haven't found it yet i've never seen it so i'll have to go look it out and it's called the slow boat sailing podcast then that's right so if you google my or you put my name in the search box for itunes or you put slow boat sailing in the the link or if you even put sailing you probably find it um but they might see your podcast ahead of mine <laughs> well that's all right i don't think we're in competition or just adding different materials so that's okay no i don't think so either um the uh yeah so i i don't know i uh i was kind of debating you know should i start a youtube channel or should i do audio and i after doing the audio book i felt more comfortable with audio um i guess the other the other thing is I, I'm more a, a radio face. Well, I, I always like to watch videos when I have the time, but I have a lot more time just to listen. You know, I can listen while driving. I can listen while doing anything, but I can't watch a YouTube video while I'm driving. And and I've, I've put out a few YouTube videos. One in particular that I thought was of, of interest was my self-steering gear. But... It takes a lot of effort. It take, to me, it seems to take a lot more effort to put out a, a good... Well, I don't put out well-edited videos, but I do put out well-edited audio. And it just takes a lot more... It's a skill set that I don't necessarily have, and I probably don't have the software to do it well either. So I've, I've found I'm sticking with audio as a general rule. I may take my little cheap camera and do a YouTube video, but I, there's not going to be much polish to it at all. And I see a lot of good youtube videos where they spend a lot of time in the production on doing it and i just don't have the time maybe you do but i found i don't no i've not found that i do i, I you know i have i've that most respect for you know people like 
SV Delos, uh, but you know, there's seven of them or something on the boat. <laughs> you know, I don't, I just don't, I don't have time to do that. And they've been doing, they've been practicing that for eight years or something. So I, I, I don't think I can compete in that space, but yeah, I agree with you too. I'm more an audio guy. I've always, you know, I've used podcasts since, you know, way back in the early 2000s. And I don't have time to sit and watch video as much as I do to listen to audio. All right. So I actually did find your blog on your website, and it took me to your uh, to your podcast. And I see episode number seven, Polynesian Navigation. So uh, Hokulea, uh, which is a traditional uh, Polynesian sailing vessel, which is currently doing a round-the-world trip. They've done the... Polynesian Triangle in that boat, which is 40 years old. Uh, it's older than I am. Uh, and uh, it uh, right now they, they went around uh, Cape Horn and they're on their way to Cuba. So you've got a few podcasts out. Uh, South Pacific Weather with Met Bob. Okay. Cuba Bound. So that one's there's one that fits right in with what you're doing then. Yeah, I like to interview people that are... Uh, relevant to my upcoming trip because it helps me prepare for it so after panama are you going to leave your boat in panama for several years or do you plan on moving it through the panama canal and head down to the south pacific yeah well we'll see how i do getting it to panama and then uh my hope is that we'll go through the panama canal and go for the south pacific next year but you know uh hopes are not always reality when you take it to Panama, do you have a specific marina that you're going to be going to? Uh, there's a lot of different marinas in Panama. I have the cruising guides for them. Uh, you know, I think if you're going into Cologne, people say there's only one marina. Um, so you, you've got somewhat limited choices in Panama if you're going to go into a marina. A lot of people that are going to spend a lot of time in Panama are going to spend time in the San Blas Islands, mm -hmm. which are kind of east of the canal zone on the Caribbean side. And they spend a lot of time at anchor with the Kuna Indians, and, uh, enjoying the beautiful reefs of it. When you leave your boat, are you going to leave it in the water or are you going to pull it out of the water? I mean, it sounds to me like you may be going back and forth throughout the winter where I tend to leave my boat there until I go back in the summer. So, yeah, one of the things that I, I talk about in How to Sail Around the World part-time is that even people that quit their job, sell their house, and move, move full-time on a boat, they are cannot cross the Pacific in uh, a single season, and they, or at least if they do it, they keep on coming back to uh, islands that they missed. So if they they do, they are they have to hole up somewhere for six months of the year because of cyclone season, right? And so my plan is uh, for my two to three months a year is to move the boat to a new location, then haul it out. And so I think one of the big mistakes that people do is they rush across the Pacific and that that make, forces them into decisions 
to go to places in the Tasman Sea, which is notorious for bad weather, and they get slammed by bad weather. Their crew gets shell-shocked, their boat gets uh, damaged, and then they, and they probably prematurely suspend their trips because of their bad experiences. I'm a slow boater myself, so, you know, the big hops across the Atlantic were the long-distance sailing I've done, and, and other than that, I like going, you know, 30 miles a day, and that's about it. I don't really like the long-distance sailing that much. To me, port hopping is what it's all about, and finding a nice anchorage and relaxing and swimming, ah, that's what I like. Yeah, I, you know, I think everybody is looking for something different. I, you know, if you look at the numbers of people going to the Eastern Caribbean versus the numbers of people going to the Bahamas, you know, it's about 20 to one people are going to the Bahamas and you can do that mostly by court hopping a few miles a day. You do have to do some overnights uh, in the Bahamas to, to get maybe from Bimini uh, to uh, Nassau uh, or maybe from West End in the Abacos uh, to the, or West End in Grand Bahama to get to the Abacos on the eastern side of the Little Bahama Bank. But generally you can port hop and go from place to place. And I think that makes it very popular. I think if you're looking at kind of around the world trip, you're really in it for the adventure, right? You're in it for the, the challenge and some of the hardship, right? So I, one of the things I talk about in the trip, I try to compare it to climbing Mount Everest uh, that, and talk about the hardship that people go through to go up Mount Everest and the risks associated with it, and then try to contrast that with kind of the risks of kind of around the world trip uh, to get kind of people in the same mindset. And I don't think the risks are anywhere comparable, but the numbers of people actually uh, completing around the world circumnavigation is less or uh, near parity with the number of people climbing Everest on a good year. I think a lot of people lose interest after they are gone. I mean, the fantasy is always better than the reality on a lot of these things. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, I right. So, I mean, people think you go on a sailing cruise and it's very glamorous. They don't think about, you know, Hauling water, you know. Doing uh, laundry, getting, laundry, yeah, yeah. <laughs> cooking the meals, going grocery shopping, trying to get spares and all of in. walking and involve dinghies that have cranky outboard motors and things like that and rough seas and all kinds of stuff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know I have people that say, oh, it must be great out there. So I say, yeah, well, it's a lot of work. It's not, it's not that great. It's great, but it's not like it's... You don't put challenge. any effort in it. Yeah, it's it's it's, <laughs> it's 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 the fantasy is a lot better than the reality. <laughs> Maybe not better, but it's different than the reality. I should say. So, Linus, let me let me ask you: If you um, sitting here right now, just dreaming, what would you want to do in the next ten years with your boat, and and what hops would you like to make? Um. So. I talk about in how to sail around the world part-time, you know, kind of the hops that you could make, right? So if you're going on a two to six month schedule, uh, where would you haul out your boat essentially? You'd, 
most people start in the Eastern Caribbean. I'm not going to start in the Eastern Caribbean. I'll start in Panama, say, or I'll start in New Orleans. Uh, and then they'll go to Panama, go through the canal, haul out their boat in Panama somewhere. Then they'll go to Tahiti. Uh, you can haul out your boat in Tahiti or Raiatea. Uh, and while you're not allowed to stay in French Polynesia for three months, your boat can stay in French Polynesia for 12 months. So you're limited to 90 days as, as a tourist, but your boat can stay there for 12 months before you have to go through all kinds of rigmarole to stay long. Uh, and then uh, from there, uh, there are haul-out facilities in Fiji. Uh, you could haul out in New Caledonia. Uh, I, my idea is that I would want to avoid probably Australia uh, as long as possible. So one of the things I talk about is that where people get into trouble is in the Tasman Sea. Uh, and in the higher latitudes, so you want to keep your you want to keep your low latitudes as long as possible. And instead of avoiding hurricane season by going to high latitudes, you haul out in low latitudes, and uh, that's how you, you you weather the hurricane season or the cyclone season. So from there, you uh, either go to Indonesia or maybe Australia. Um, and then from there, you got places like uh, very small places like uh, Cocos Keeling, Chagos, uh, then you go to Madagascar, South Africa. All right. I was, I was looking for marinas around Singapore, and there's a few marinas, but there's, I didn't see any haul-out facilities. Do you, have you been identifying haul-out facilities in your book? Yeah, I mentioned a few. Uh, one thing I would say, though, you know, you go to the Northern Hemisphere, you start going to the Northern Hemisphere in North Asia, then you are going to open yourself up to a cyclone season that does not, does not have an end, right? So the North Pacific cyclone season, and that's something that Met Bob mentioned on podcast six, there is no season, it's all year, right? So, <laughs> so, so a cruise of, of, uh, of uh, the Pacific is, is uh, North Pacific is not uh, cyclone free, even if you choose your, your seasons. So for yourself, what are you, so that's what you're talking about in the book. Is that the route you're thinking of taking yourself? Yes. Yeah. So, um, so to stay, so Tahiti, Fiji, um, Caledonia, uh, Indonesia or Australia, um, Indian Ocean, when you're talking about kind of Cocos Keeling type places, uh, possibly Mauritius, possibly Chagos, Madagascar, uh, South Africa. So the idea is to create chunks of the voyage that are less than 4,000 miles per year. And so what people do and hopefully less than that even. But what people do uh, when they do their first Pacific crossing, the most common thing is that they go 8,000, 10,000 miles in a year. And then after that, they're, they're really kind of burned out. So yeah. most, most people that get to Australia are going to sell their boats. That's the old story I used to hear that uh, 
the typical dream was uh, to sell the farm and buy a boat. So the, the couple gets on the boat, sails to Hawaii, sells the uh, boat in Hawaii, and flies back and tries to buy the farm back again. Right. So actually, I just I just interviewed someone whose idea, which was a good one, uh, was to take a year off to sail his boat to Australia, buy a boat in the, the Eastern Caribbean, sail the South Pacific in the year, and sell it in Australia. And that was his goal. And I think that was great. I think he completely executed his plan awesomely and it changed his life and he loved it. Um, but if you're, you're planning on sailing around the world, I don't think doing the South Pacific in a single season is the right way to go. Yeah. Well, I'm a Mediterranean sailor and have been for at least 10 years. And as I, there's still a lot in the Mediterranean I haven't seen. So I don't mind hopping around. So I'm looking at uh, at Amazon, and the Kindle edition of How to Sail Around the World Part-Time is $0.99. Cents. Uh, the paperback is $9.99, and uh, and the audiobook is uh, around $14. So so pretty good bargains, in my opinion. Yeah, you can get the MP3 for $8.99, but, uh, yeah, I think most people are going to buy the Kindle edition. I You know, I was working on a audiobook for Slobo to the Bahamas, but I, I've mentioned this on my podcast that I'm, unless I see better audio sales, I'm not going to pursue it. It's a lot of effort for a, for a <laughs> marginal return on your time, isn't it? Right. I'd rather, I'd rather write more Kindle books. Okay. Now, now you con- contacted me and we may as well just go over this on, on, on the podcast because I talked about, changing my heat exchanger um year before last or was it last year no last year it was last year last summer and uh and you called up and said you've got the same engine as i do the the yanmar 3 gm 30 f and so you wanted to know if you needed to have a full heat exchanger uh separate so so what i had to do on my heat exchanger was to uh the only spare parts i needed were the gaskets for the two end caps on the heat exchanger. And you have to have, those are the spare parts you need. You don't need the full heat exchanger, which is pretty darned expensive. I think the gasket's around $30. Did you get your spare parts yet? Yeah, I have a long spare part list. I've not gotten the extra gaskets that you recommended, but I that is on my list of things to do. <laughs> uh, but I, I did buy a spare uh, water pump spare freshwater pump um let's see uh, a spare of the injectors uh, a spare thermostat quite a lot of other spares for the engine i'm kind of an engine freak in the sense that i'm very fearful of not having parts for the engine so you have both the fresh and the salt water spare water pumps yes okay yeah <laughs> i learned my lesson on that so i've got them as well now yeah so what what i what I like to do is I like to kind of crowdsource my uh, my questions, boat-related questions. So I have a lot of friends on Facebook, and I also am a member of a lot of sailing groups on Facebook. And I, one of them, for instance, is a Yanmar diesel group. And I ask them, you know, what are the things that are going to fail? What would you put on your spare parts list? And so especially if you're going to Cuba, you kind of – you. You can't parts hard to get there, impossible to get in Cuba 
save maybe another American boat sailing there. Uh, so you you really want to be very self-sufficient. Do you go over your parts list or your what you might want to consider taking on your in your book? Uh, I do not. I didn't. You know, and how to sail the around the world part time is kind of just. I'm trying to make it more focused on just the dispelling people the myths that people have and the route itself and why you're forced to sail around the world part-time even if you're retired and have if money's not an option and you don't have a home to go back to uh, so i wanted to keep it focused i originally thought i might put that in a in another sailing narrative but i thought that that would be a disservice and a lot of people wouldn't read it there um so but uh, you know, if people want to keep track of what I'm doing, they prob probably would, uh, you know, send a friend request to me on Facebook. They would want to maybe like my page on Facebook, which is called Slow Boat to the Bahamas. Or join one of the groups that I'm an administrator for, like uh, Slow Boat to the Bahamas, which is kind of a fan group. And then um, the, or the Bahamas Cruising and Sailing, if they want to learn about the Bahamas, uh, which is a group that I founded. It's got a lot of members and it, it has a lot of people that have spent many, many years, you know, many, some over 20 years uh, sailing in the Bahamas. So uh, you can rely on their expertise to, to help you navigate. Great. Linus, I, I've enjoyed talking to you and I'll put links to everything on the show notes. Is there anything else we should add before we call it an interview? No, uh, thanks for talking to me, uh, Franz. Appreciate it. Talk to you later, Linus. Thanks for listening. Again, let me ask that you do me a favor and you go into the iTunes directory and rate this podcast. And if you have the time, write a comment or two. Thanks a lot. Get out there and go sailing. Joe, you have something to tell me? No, I don't think so. I just got off the telephone with Bill Rutherford. Princeton can use a guy like Joe. What? Princeton can use a guy like Joe. His exact words. That's unbelievable. You're as good as in. I knew you could do it. Haven't I been telling you, every once in a while, you just got to say, what the heck, and take some chances. You are so right. You made me very proud. I was just thinking. Where we might be ten years from now, you know? <laughs>